Welcome back to the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Cressy, and this is episode 178. We are long overdue for a listener Q&A, so that's what we're going to hit here today. Um, the last one we did was actually back in July, so we've had some time to stockpile some good questions from listeners. Um, so we can always get your suggestions into us in terms of content for these Q&As, either by you know sending us a message on social media or by using email. It's Elite Baseball podcast at gmail.com. So don't ever be shy about submitting some stuff that you think might be a good uh, piece of content for these Q&As. So without further ado, we'll get to it. This episode is brought to you by Hawken Dynamics, which is based in the US with offices in Australia and the UK. They believe that the technology is most useful when it stays out of your way. That's why in 2016, Hawken engineered the first wireless force plate solution with a mobile app, making it the quickest, easiest to use, and most robust solution on the market for group testing. Today, it is still the only fully validated wireless force plate solution that exists, something that's extremely important when evaluating marginal gains on the world's best athletes, monitoring readiness or returning athletes back from an upper or lower extremity injury. It's trusted by all sports organizations, large and small, as well as tactical, military, and rehabilitation environments around the globe. It's force plate testing in the palm of your hand with research-grade accuracy. We use Hawken Dynamics force plates at Cressy Sports Performance, and they're a crucial part of our evaluation process, not to mention a vital resource for monitoring fatigue and evaluating the efficacy of our performance and rehabilitation programs. Whether it's finding the sweet spot on the force velocity curve or keeping a close eye on asymmetries, these force plates are used all day, every day at CSP. Their customer service is also top-notch, and they're wildly responsive to inquiries from both existing customers and prospects. Be sure to check them out at www.hawkindynamics.com backslash Cressy to learn more. You can also give a listen to their VP of Performance, Drake Berberet, on episode 174 of the Elite Baseball Development Podcast. Again, that's hawkindynamics.com backslash Cressy, H-A-W-K-I-N. D-Y-N-A-M-I-C-S dot com backslash Cressy, C-R-E-S-S-E-Y. Give it a shot. You won't regret it. For our first question, we have an inquiry from a mom who asked, what are your thoughts on high school students playing a winter sport? My son has played basketball and baseball since he was four. He wants to play college baseball and decided as a high school sophomore that he wants to quit all sports but baseball and focus on that. We think he is too young and should play basketball this winter and still attend his indoor baseball sessions for pitching. Thoughts? Um, I've been pretty outspoken about you know my feelings about uh early sports specialization. So what I'll tell you is definitely go back and and listen to podcast episode 75, where I really touch on this exact topic in a lot of detail. But I thought this question was really timely because we are in a time right now where some new research just came out um, that I'm going to highlight a little bit later in my response. But the first thing I would say is remember that playing multiple sports is great, not only for exposure to a wide variety of movement patterns, um, you know, and obviously different social circumstances, you know, different teammates, different friend groups, all that stuff. But I think what we really overlook the most um, in the context of, of additional benefits of other sports is that there's a high volume of variable plyometric activity involved. And and when you look at baseball, right, you, you hit and you pitch, you throw, it's kind of the same patterns over and over again. And, and don't get me wrong, you play, you know, defense as a position player, um, you run the bases, you have some variety in that regard. But what we realize is that 
playing multiple sports probably builds better long-term athletes in large part because they're exposed to rich proprioceptive environments. And, and these environments enable them to develop variable motor strategies for dealing for any challenge that sports or life may throw at them. So if you build this big foundation of general athletic proficiency, you're going to be more likely to succeed when the time comes to, to stack those specific athletic proficiencies that you see in the baseball world on top of that base. Um, but the really, it's, it's not just that you're exposed to a different collection of patterns. It's that they're done in an appreciable amount of volume. So volume is the name of the game for creating adaptation. Um, back in the day, I remember reading an article that that showed that the average midfielder in a soccer game makes about 2,200 change of directions uh, over the course of a match. That's a ton of work and, and no two cuts you know, on a soccer field are like one another. Sometimes they happen with the ball at the feet. Sometimes they don't. You go in both directions. Um, I'm sure you can find similar crazy statistics in basketball or tennis or football and a host of other activities. It's so hard to find that varied volume in any other way. And I think it's particularly advantageous that many of these activities take place during childhood growth spurts when it's a super advantageous time to train power. Um, Dr. Greg Rose actually talked about this a lot when we interviewed him in a previous podcast, mostly with respect to, you know, developing golfers, but um, the message is the same. When kids are going through growth spurts, it's an awesome time to train power. So you get a kid that shoots up six inches in six months, you put him on a soccer field and he's going to run a lot faster and jump a lot higher because that long bone growth has really outpaced the ability of the muscles and tendons to keep up. So you get really springy athletes, even if there probably is a little bit more susceptibility to growth plate injuries and, um, you know, basically muscular strains from, from things being, you know, too short for the long bones. Um, I've often said though, that it's, it's easier to make a fast guy strong than it is to make a strong guy fast. And one reason for that is that it's not hard to build strength with a limited amount of volume in the weight room, right? We can have, you know, kids come in, you know, who are untrained and, and do a couple sets on each exercise and they're going to hold a lot. The, the window of adaptation is, is really, really big. So you don't have to do a high volume of work. However, it's incredibly hard to build elasticity without a ton of reps. That's something that takes uh, a ton of exposures. Um, and if I get a baseball only kid at age 16 who hasn't played multiple sports, you know, in my view, I've got an uphill battle to chase elasticity, um, both of the tendons and then the fascial system, you know, kind of some of the the newer ways of looking at elasticity that, that Bill Parisi talked about in a, in a recent podcast um, without actually hurting them, right? Because I can't just go out and try to make up for five years of them not playing soccer or tennis or football or whatever sport they would do um, because I have a high risk of, of tendon injury if I push them too fast. Um, so, so really take my word for it. Early specialization is a bad idea. And I think we're discovering more and more reasons why that's the case with each passing day. Um, like I said, I talked about this in podcast episode uh, 75. And remember that this is not just an injury risk thing. We, we certainly know there's more likely for, uh, you know, challenges for pattern overload, but it's also a developmental thing. And, and that's why I wanted to talk about this today is recently a, a new study came out from Dr. Christopher Camp's group at the Mayo Clinic in the Journal of Shoulder and Elbow Surgery. Uh, the title of the study, and it's, it's free public access, is early single sport specialization does not improve pitching velocity, motion, strength, or utilization in high school baseball pitchers. Um, so what they did was they they basically put two groups, they tracked them in, in various parts of the country. Um, they basically had kids that, that participated in baseball only and ones that participated in different sports. And they found that high school single sport baseball athletes did not show superior velocity, motion, strength, 
or playing time compared to multi-sport athletes when it came time to evaluate them during baseball season. There was not a performance outcome benefit in this particular study. In other words, the kids that just did baseball weren't better baseball players in this study compared to the ones that played basketball over the winter, but there was more risk. Um, They didn't see a significant difference just because it was a shorter um, study timeline. So they actually only had one injury in the group over the course of that season. Um, But I think if you go and you look at the rest of the research, we do see way more injuries in, in people who you know, focus exclusively on baseball, throw more innings per year, you know, play for multiple teams, things like that. Um, they only followed them for that 2022 high school season. So it was hard to track injury rates. However, um, 26%, so 15 out of 58 of the multi-sport uh, sport group reported a history of injury compared to 38% of the single sport athletes. So what that means is you're, you're looking at a 12% injury risk di- uh, difference in terms of what they self-reported over the course of their playing careers. So, um, you know, in this particular study, they found that 53% of the kids had an early specialization rate, um, but 47% of the pitchers still played other sports, which I thought was good. Um, that said, in 2021, there was a study from B at all that conducted a survey that, that found that 79% of collegiate athletes were multi-sport athletes in high school. Another study in 2016 from Bell et al conducted a survey of high school athletes and 70% reported them as multi-sport athletes. So in this particular study from, from Christopher Camp's group, they found that the rate of single sport uh, specialization was higher than either of those previous studies. So, you know, obviously I think we've all seen it anecdotally, but this is a study that actually verifies that, you know, early sports specialization is becoming much more common and we're seeing the injury rates that go along with it. But what's interesting is this study shows that there isn't really a performance benefit that goes on to it. So despite the increase in in single sport specialization, and this is a quote from them, none of the metrics recorded in this study favored those who specialize. Hence, while many may feel they are obtaining competitive advantage by specializing, all they may be doing is increasing the risk of overuse injuries. So this just kind of reflects back on some of the stuff I talked about earlier with respect to athletic exposures. I think the long-term gain has a lot more to do with staying athletic and, and doing what you need to do um, you know, by playing multiple sports. Now, with that said, we understand that athletes have limited time and recovery capacity. So one of the things I've talked to athletes about over the years, it doesn't have to be an either or, right? So if you're a kid that, you know, maybe you play football in the fall and baseball in the spring, you're debating on what to do, um, you know, with a with a, a winter sport. Um, it doesn't have to be sign up for the basketball team, be all in for six days a week of practice slash games, get run into the ground and lose 30 pounds, right? What I often tell guys to do is, hey, play pickup hoops twice a week with your buddies. Um, you know, get involved in a good strength and conditioning program that that gives you access to a wide variety of movement patterns, um, you know, different positions on the force velocity curve. Chase that exposure wherever you can. Even if it's going out and playing tennis once a week or something like that, you can find different ways um, to really get those exposures. And um, we see a lot of our pro baseball guys that love to like, you know, throw the frisbee or throw the football, do stuff like that just to change up some of their their movement training, their their sprint, their agility, their plyometric emphasis. So you're trying to find ways to get that exposure in. I think the historic downside of playing a winter sport is that, you know, if it's swimming or it's basketball or it's hockey, there is a really significant um 
you know, conditioning component to those sports. So we see a lot of athletes who have a hard time keeping weight on, or they're just really, really fatigued a lot. So it does make it hard to do a winter throwing program. So my advice to those people is unless you're really, really in on that winter sport, just find a way to dabble a little bit and give yourself some variety alongside a good strength conditioning program and, you know, a gradual on-ramp of, of baseball specific activities over the course of the winter. So always think not either, or think more and, um, and get creative with how you design your, your off-season programs. For a second question, we actually got this from an up-and-coming physical therapist that's working more with baseball athletes. So I kind of had to, to minimize the email just to make sure it all fit into to a, a succinct way. But um, he said, rotator cuff drills are obviously a key part of rehabilitation and prevention programs, but I'm struggling to see where all the different kinds fit into my programs for my athletes. Do you have any ideas on how to categorize these? Um I thought this was an awesome question and, and I actually kind of touched on it in an indirect way in an old blog that I had written. So it was a good chance to kind of refocus my thoughts. But the first thing I'll tell you is remember that the rotator cuff is reflexive. It's working all the time and you know quality of work is much more important than quality of work. So when I say it's reflexive, if you go to pick up a suitcase, your rotator cuff fires, right? You go to throw a baseball, it's doing its job to kind of stabilize that humeral head. You don't have to actively tell it to turn on. What we do know about a lot of baseball players is that over the course of time, the cuff gets really banged up. Um, in fact, you know, kind of slowly failing rotator cuffs is an issue with older throwers and they develop kind of a stiffer capsule as a way to, in my opinion, at least protect against it. Um, so we do see this chronic change where the rotator cuff gets beaten up more and more. So I think it's important for us to give it reminders, not just strength work, but, you know, giving it clues as to, Hey, fire this fast at this time in this position. So quality work done frequently, in my opinion, um, is more important than the quantity of work. But in a, in a broad sense, just about every rotator cuff exercise, for me at least, can be categorized in one of five ways. We can, it can be a strength exercise, it can be a timing exercise, it can be a endurance exercise, it can be an irradiation exercise, or it can be a patterning exercise. And I'll, I'll talk about kind of how I, I structure this. But for a strength exercise, that would be your classic manual resistance work, you know, something you do with cable or dumbbells, it can be loaded up and it can be challenging, right? So for some of our guys, we may do sets of like six reps on manual resistance, eccentric stuff, where we know we can really push to create a higher level of strength, kind of create that base. For a timing exercise, this would be a thing like a 90-90 ER hold, like a rhythmic stabilization where you're responding to some kind of uh, external stimulus, you know, that basically uh, is forcing you to recruit quickly to, to stabilize, right? So things like the body blade or the shoulder tube, they kind of fall under this patterning. The problem is that the the destabilizing torque tends to be really predictable because it's initiated by the person holding the device. It's a lot different if that same person goes through all those same patterns and they're getting an external bit of feedback, whether it's like doing like a wall dribble or somebody actually perturbating their arm. So timing's a little bit tricky. Um, from an endurance standpoint, you know, this builds on the strength stuff we've done. You know, it may even be some of the same exercises, but resistance is a bit lower and it's done for higher reps or a longer time. And this is a place where a lot of people do a lot of blood flow restricted training here. We know that they're, they're probably sacrificing loads some, but they're, they're getting some different benefits, um, by pumping out a lot more reps and doing it in that, that 
occlusion state. Um, the goal is less about strength and more about training the ability to hold the humeral head, so the ball on the glenoid fossa, the socket, for an extended period of time. Um, I'd, I'd call this much more important for a sport like swimming um, than for baseball or tennis athletes just because they have a, a more prolonged exposure um, to activities that require a lot of rotator cuff control versus you know baseball, you throw a pitch and then you wait 15 seconds and you throw another one. Um, so I think endurance is key and, and it works hand in hand with a lot of other stuff we do, but I don't get as caught up in doing tons of sets of 15. I, I kind of makes my eyes bleed when I see a rotator cuff program that's 15 exercises, 15 reps each. And, you know, people spend 45 minutes doing it. I don't, I don't think the rotator cuff works that way. Um, number four is irradiation. So the idea, um, is that just any, any exercise you do, your rotator cuff is going to fire reflexively anytime your arm moves. But that said, certain exercises, things like bottoms up kettlebell variations, um, things like that are, are particularly useful for challenging this category of drills. So you go in the bottoms up position and your cuff is firing like crazy because you're just trying to balance that thing, um, and not have it tip over on you. So certain exercises, I think create a lot of that. Generally speaking, anything that involves a lot of gripping is going to increase that reflexive rotator cuff stuff. So when when you see people doing bottoms up waiters walks and bottoms up carries and things like that, they're usually attacking um, this irradiation component. Um, and then last but not least, number five would be patterning. These are drills that just take the humerus through its full range of motion. Um, and I think of particular points as end range external rotation, which we train with drills like, you know, prone end range liftoffs. Um, we're trying to work them through the entire range of motion. I think a lot of the PNF series that you've seen historically um, done in, in the physical therapy world is great in this regard. Um, so you, you kind of have your five patterns, your, your five options, strength, timing, endurance, irradiation, and patterning. And in terms of overall structure, I prefer to have near daily exposures on most of these categories rather than the exhaustive, less frequent programs. I don't like to just massacre guys twice a week. So if you look at our training programs, most of our pro guys are doing some kind of targeted training for the rotator cuff five to six days a week. So on, on two days per week, you know, usually on like upper body days, if we're lifting on a four day training schedule, we'd push more strength in a radiation work. So in the, in that workout, you know, they, they do all their upper extremity stuff, push-ups, rows, things like that. And then maybe they have like a bottoms up kettlebell carry, um, that, that might, you know, challenge the irradiation component. And afterwards we're going to do some manual resistance, you know, external rotation stuff to give them some more, um, you know, eccentric strength, um, that it may also be a day where you hit some, you know, heavier prone horizontal abduction or, you know, something in that regard, some direct forearm work, things like that. And then, you know, on other days, typically our, our lower body days, we tend to do a lot more um, lighter load scapular control work, things like serratus and low trap and stuff like that. And I like to mix in um, more of our cuff timing drills on, on that day. So things like 90-90 ER holds at end range and rhythmic stabilizations, those are great on lower body day because they don't require a lot of recovery. They don't you know, fatigue athletes like crazy. Um, you can even do them before athletes go out to throw. Um, and then certainly every day, there's going to be some kind of patterning exercise during the warm up, so that we're really reminding the cuff of what it's supposed to do. A lot of people do band series, and I think that's great for getting some blood flowing and and obviously you know work on some stuff. But I really think it's important to get to some end range external rotation. Um, and and obviously this this approach I just outlined of doing something you know 
pretty much every day is kind of a stark contrast to what you usually see in the baseball world, which is notorious for handing out the two times a week arm care routines that often take, you know, 45 to 60 minutes each and leave guys hanging. Um, they're usually about 15 exercises from multiple sites. And, you know, it's, I just don't think that's the way your rotator cuff works. So I'd get, uh, I think much better results by doing shorter, more frequent sessions for guys, mixing it into their lifts so that it doesn't feel too monotonous. Um, and I, and I think, that historic approach has more to do with the fact that it's just what's convenient for uh, what we see maybe in two to three times per week physical therapy sessions that, you know, maybe are, are dictated more by insurance practices than because it's truly optimal. Um, I, I'm of the belief that you don't need or want to exhaust the rotator cuff to get it where it needs to be. Um, and I think, you know, anecdotally, the guys that I've worked with in professional baseball aren't as big of fans of really hitting it hard twice a week. They all have come some kind of like a daily exposure. Um, and then last but not least, just remember that while we're at it, that, you know, the rotator cuff is going to get abused on a daily basis with throwing, lifting activities of daily living. So I, I do think there's a level of functional carryover by giving it exposures on a daily basis, um, you know, with our training programs to kind of simulate the fact that it is working quite a bit every day. This is not like your hamstrings only get worked when you sprint and you lift something heavy, and you know, for your posterior chain, um, you know, they're going to have a really, really low level of effort. Whereas your rotator cuff actually gets quite a bit of exposures just by playing catch every day. So we need to be mindful of that in the way that we prescribe programming for our athletes. For our third and final question of this Q&A, we have, you previously talked about lessons learned in terms of Tommy John rehabilitation and strength and conditioning timelines. That said, I know a lot of surgeons and rehab specialists have also adjusted their timelines in relation to some of the newer techniques that are out there. What are some of your key takeaways now that this has been out for a while? And what I think this question is referring to in specific is the concept of a UCL repair with internal brace alongside a classic UCL reconstruction. So what's basically happened in recent years, um, and I definitely encourage you to go back and listen to our podcast with Dr. Jeff Dugas, who was the one that really pioneered this technique in the elbow. Um, really what's happening is they're doing this internal brace to effectively fortify an existing native ligament. So you might have someone who who has a, a high-grade ulnar collateral ligament injury. It's not a full thickness tear, but there is some good tissue still there. So what they'll do is they'll do uh, an internal brace to effectively fortify that native ligament. In some cases, they can use that as a an alternative to Tommy John with a shorter return to action. But what's also happening now is they're doing the full-blown reconstruction where they take a graft, you know, maybe palmaris longus, it may be lower extremity, to replace that that ligament. And, and then they're also doing an internal brace um, to kind of extra fortify the elbow. So this is a newer procedure that we're seeing a lot more. I've actually seen three of them this week alone. Um, and there are some really important lessons, I think, that as we get these kind of hybrid approaches that you have to really keep in mind. And the first thing, and, and I've spoken at length with our physical therapist, Eric Schoenberg, about this because he's we have several of them. The number one thing is that you can't force flexion. Um, so many of these athletes are more limited in flexion coming out of the surgery than previously. There's a, there's a lot more work that was done. There's a lot more fortification. And I think what we're seeing in many cases is athletes that come out, maybe their extension's pretty good or it comes easy, but the flexion is a little bit more stubborn. And what we've seen a few times now is, is athletes who have had trouble in some cases, it's because they've been kind of splinted or pushed into flexion for low load, long duration stretching. 
what winds up happening is they, they develop either a you know aggressive capsulitis or ulnar nerve irritation or something to that effect, and they can actually wind up with a lot of discomfort. So the big thing about flexion with these procedures is it comes back a little slower. Um, it may not come back all the way, but as long as it's really close, you know, to them being able to touch their hand or their shoulder, we're in a good spot. But the the biggest mistake that we see is people in that you know six, eight, ten week mark to really force it aggressively. So we always tell people let flexion happen a little bit more slowly than maybe in previous years, um, and certainly don't overpressure it and push it really hard. And really the, the surgeons out there that are doing a lot of these are, are certainly cautioning people against doing this. So that's one big lesson is, is be patient with flexion. Secondly, um, I, I think it's really important to remind people, um, just in light of some of the mistakes I've seen is that don't do a, a ton of work just because you feel like you have to, right? And, th- and the reason I say that is Tommy John rehabilitation timeline, we know is, you know, 14 months plus or minus six or eight weeks. So at the very least, you really got a year of, of crazy, you know, hard, diligent rehab over the course of time. And, and what we see actually is sometimes when they're just trying to fill the day. So you see these athletes that are getting absolutely beaten into the ground from a strength conditioning standpoint, they're doing tons and tons of arm care stuff, both at the forearm and the shoulder and the elbow. Um, and then they're, you know, they're also sprinting, they're building up their aerobic capacity, doing all this stuff. And, you know, certainly, you know, it's, it's important to get in a high quality of work. And, and for many athletes, it's life changing to be able to focus on fitness for such an extended period of time in the middle of their career. Um, but what I always tell people is remember that as you add, you have to subtract from somewhere else. So, you know, we'll get athletes going in about two weeks and, and we'll train very hard early, right? Early on, we'll be able to build an aerobic base with them and we'll be able to train the opposite side, really work on the lower half and do some modified core, core work. Um, but what we really have to appreciate is that eventually the time is going to come when the weight room volume has to come back a little bit, particularly with respect to gripping. Um, you know, we see some athletes that get into situations where months eight, nine, ten, you know, they're doing a lot of forum stuff in physical therapy. They're starting to throw more uh, and more aggressively, and they're still doing a lot of grip stuff in the weight room. And it's just too much, and they, they wind up with some flexor irritation. So I always say train hard early and then pair back as throwing ramps up. And and unfortunately, the guys that seem to have the most setbacks with with post-op, you know, UCL scenarios are the high motivation guys. Um, sometimes there's a little bit of a benefit to being a little bit lazy because you don't force things, um, to come all at the same time. And, and I talked a little bit about this with my, uh, episode 95 was lessons learned from orthopedic surgery. And, and I talked about it with respect to my knee. Um, but all of the messages are, are really applicable to elbows and shoulders and things like that. So, um, building on that previous one, don't do you know, a ton just because you feel like you have to do an appropriate amount of volume. I think it is important to emphasize to get plyometric work in early. We see a lot of athletes who, who detrain this quite a bit because they've stopped throwing. Maybe they're waiting for a diagnosis. And then, you know, it's a couple of weeks before they can start to do any kind of like jumping or anything a little bit more dynamic after the surgery. So they, they quickly detrain this quality. Um, and we've measured this on, on, on the Hawkins force plates just to see how things, you know, progress. And in many cases, you have athletes that aren't getting back to their pre-injury power numbers for up to, you know, four or five months after the surgery. So it detrains quickly and you really got to work hard to get it back. What is nice is in general, um, it seems like more of the big names are clearing athletes to sprint quicker. We had one um, guy that had a Tommy John and he actually was cleared to sprint at six weeks post-op. We kept him in the brace for his sprinting, but it was nice for him to be able to actually get out there and and safely move and challenge a little bit. Obviously, you always run the risk of them falling. So, you know, make sure it's not a crazy amount of change of direction. You're not doing on bad surfaces or anything like that. Um, But it's nice to be able to attack power a little bit sooner. So, Early on, though, it may be arms overhead, it may be hands on the hips, something like that to really push that 
um, that power development early on in the process as quickly as you can so that it makes your, your later work a lot more effective. My goal is always to get our, our force plate numbers back to pre-surgery numbers, you know, by about four to five months, you know, ideally before they start their throwing program. And most guys are starting in the five or six month range these days. So big takeaways for me as these, these new procedures have evolved is, is one, don't force flexion. Two, don't feel like you just need to force a bunch of extra exercise just because there's a lot of time to fill. And then three, make sure you're training power quickly, particularly because athletes are being uh, moved a little bit faster with their rehabilitation, particularly if you're looking at like an isolated uh, UCL repair with internal brace, which you know has a much quicker return to action. Um, and I do expect us to see a lot more of those, particularly in, you know, kind of like those high school and college scenarios where, you know, a junior might, you know, have the surgery just so they can come back and play their senior and finish out their career. Um, maybe not as common with those who are, who are headed on to a, a long professional career. So important messages, don't force flexion. Don't just force volume that's, that's there for no reason and, and make sure you move athletically as soon as possible after the surgery. Thanks so much for tuning in to the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast. We really appreciate you carving out some time in your schedule to listen, not just to this episode, but also to some of the episodes from our archives. If you enjoy what you heard, we'd love it if you'd share it with friends, colleagues, and teammates, as well as leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Thanks again for your time.